Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. All you got to do is do good comedy because there's a need for it. This business, I mean, comedy besides porn is the number one thing on the internet. You look at the amount of... And comedy and porn is together is is actually number one. We're we're meant to be together, you know? What is a punchline but a bukkake shot to the face? I'm going to introduce my guest today, who I'm really pumped to have here. I'm really excited. It means a lot that he's here. And believe it or not, you might say to yourself, are there certain guests that you continually try to have on the show? And sometimes you don't get to have them on the show when you think you're going to have them on the show. And this guy is a guy I've wanted on the show probably for the past nine months. And I'm, I'm just honored that he's finally here because he's so busy and he's doing a lot of different things. And also, I would imagine, and he'll explain later if this is the case, that sometimes it's daunting for me, and I don't know if it is for him, to sit across from somebody who you've known a long time and who's on the other side of the fence And you don't know what you're going to talk about, but I can guarantee you today is going to be very inspiring. So let me tell you a little bit about Greg Fitzsimmons. He was born in New York City and he launched his career in stand-up while attending my alma mater, Boston University. He has appeared on Late Show with David Letterman and many, many other late-night talk shows, which led to a gig hosting MTV Network's game show Idiot Savants beginning in 1996, which I believe he won a Cable Ace Award for. In 1998, he landed his first Comedy Central Presents special. In 2003, he joined The Man Show and The Ellen DeGeneres Show as a writer, both in uh, 2003. In 2006, he began writing for Louis C.K.'s television series Lucky Louie on HBO. And then he launched The Greg Fitzsimmons Show on Howard Stern's satellite radio channel, Howard 101 for which today I believe he still has a show on that network. In 2010, he released his book, Dear Mrs. Fitzsimmons, Tales of Redemption from an Irish Mailbox. And in 2013, he saw him release his debut album, Life on Stage. 
He's hosted a number of different radio shows on Howard Stern's network. When I say that, I mean he's done so many different episodes of Howard Stern's show. I think he's done over 50. He started a podcast called Fitz Dog Radio, which is always in the top 50 in the world in comedy. It's an amazing podcast. If you have not listened, please, please do. Some notable things about Greg. He is the winner of the Jury Award for Best Comedian from the HBO Comedy and Arts Festival. He's appeared in Louis on FX, and he's been a frequent panelist on Chelsea Lately, The Adam Carolla Show, The Bob and Tom Show, and it should be noted, I think one of the most important things that he sort of downplays, I think, is the fact that Greg is a four-time Emmy Award-winning writer-producer, which he got that award for The Ellen DeGeneres Show. And when you can sit across from somebody in comedy who's won four Emmy Awards, you can count those people on half a hand. So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today. Very excited. Greg Fitzsimmons. Jesus, I did all that? (laughs) My God, I must have been doing this shit a long time. Well, thank you, Barry. (laughs) No problem. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, I, you know, that's funny because... uh, I I talked shit, but I think I did it in. Uh, I mean, like you said, you, you if you want to seat at the table, you gotta engage. You know, you have to critique. You have, uh, it, but I think in, I think if you're honest about it, you can tell when somebody's lashing out because they're bitter, and that's a sign of failure. And people don't respect you for that. But when you're going out, like to me, coming out of Boston and the great comics that came out of there, you know, Nick DiPaolo and Louie and Bill Burr and all, all the guys that were around when I was coming up, it was about the pure form of doing stand-up. And when somebody wasn't doing it that way, it was an affront to everybody and the art form. And so I would go after those people, but I would do it to their face. You know, I've told people straight up, and I won't mention names because some of those people have gone on to become real comedic voices. They just started out as doing it the cheap way, and uh, they were derivative, and they were people that were up industry's ass, in particular, became targets of the other comedians because New York was not about, if you said, if you referred to yourself as my career, People would shit on you for 20 minutes. You didn't have a career. You did stand-up. You tried to get stage time. You tried to do new shit. You tried to take the audience as far as you could. And you tried to do as many spots as you could. It was not about getting a development deal or even going to L.A. I remember Mark Maron. I said I was going out to L.A. for pilot season. And he and he pulled my lips apart. And he goes, let's see your teeth. Turn around. <laughs> and it was like, yeah, that's how you were treated. It's so weird you said that. Like, I remember Bill Burr, one of his first routines was talking about his name. Bill Burr, what does that sound like? Tim Burr, remember that? All those right, jokes? right. And so explain to our audience, because I think it's important for those who aren't stand-up comedians to understand what doing the right thing in comedy is to a certain group of people like yourself and Louie and Mark Marin and Bill Burr and what derivative means. I think it's really simple. It comes down to, are you doing it from the inside out or the outside in? Are you figuring out what the audience wants and then serving that up to them? Or do you have your own sort of, you know, what's your gut reaction to life and can you put it out there and connect it to the audience? Can can you get the tools necessary to um, 
bring yourself out to to you know to express yourself in your truest form or are you pandering i I think it's really that black and white and by black and white i mean the white guys do it that way (laughs) (laughs) i'll see you at the trial and not on nightline i you know i'm curious about this because i i want to go someplace with you and i hope you'll go there with me you may not can you maybe tell me somebody, maybe it's somebody from the past and you don't want to say somebody today. Tell me somebody who's riding the line, like half of what they do. You're like, my God, that's so unbelievable. And then half of what they do might be pandering. It might not be somebody today. It could have been somebody from the past who never knew which way to go. And, and it felt like they were... They were sort of in both worlds. Has oh, there been Jesus. anybody like that? Yeah. I mean, what do you, what do you set me up for, Barry? I mean, it's like... Like, I'll give you an example. I'll go someplace yeah. right now, okay? And I said this on a previous podcast, and she'll probably come over here with her 85 pounds and knock me out. I talk about Letterman being the validation stamp. Yeah. There's a young woman who did Letterman about two years ago, Ali Wong. Sure. Okay. Did a tremendous set on Letterman. Did a great job. Would I say that 100% of the jokes that she did on that set were in the Louis C.K. format or that kind of thing? Probably not, but a high percentage. She did a tremendous job. She'd be very proud about it. I go to the improv one night and I'm just hanging out and I notice that she's closing a show there. And the last... 15 to 20 minutes of the show is just basically moisture jokes about her vagina, her fingers in her vagina, what it looks like, all this kind of stuff, killing with it, killing with these jokes, swearing a little bit, but very, very blue material. And I'm thinking to myself, what's going on? You just did the validation stamp of comedy. This is what people recognize you for. This is where you're going to get your respect. This is what you're going to build on. And then you go and do your longer set and you're doing blue material. So I feel she's somebody who's riding the line and also somebody who proved that she can book significant acting jobs, which is very, very rare for a stand-up comedian to do. So not only did she prove herself as a young artist before 10 years to get Letterman, but also to book the acting job. So that's somebody I'm going to go on a limb and say is riding the line between great stuff sometimes and pandering a little the well, other Well, I think it's tough because... Um you know, I definitely like to to me, Carlin was the greatest comic. And one of the things I liked about him was that he could do really astute political commentary. He did characters and he was always true to who he was. I mean, you know, whether he was like Zippy the Weatherman or whether he turned into a hippie and then later on critiquing the Catholic Church and then becoming an environmentalist. Whatever was in his heart and his head was what he expressed on stage. And part of that was doing shit and fart jokes. And they were, to me, they were just as valid because that's where his mind went. And I think if you really are honest, I do shit jokes in my act and I know I get judged for it. You know, like, like Neil Brennan was in the back of the room at the Laugh Factory recently and he was talking about talking about having seen Damon Wayans because I, I, I consider Damon one of the most underrated comics in the business. He his is, hour special about 15 years ago or 20 years ago was just unbelievable. But still, he's out at clubs doing new shit about and he's honest about it. He talks about his kid growing up rich and trying to act like he's a thug and 
you know, stuff that is he's not still trying to be the guy he used to be. He's current. And Neil said, yeah, yeah, he was great. But then, you know, he did this bit about how you wash your ass and it still smells like ass. And and I and he goes and it just was all and I lost all respect. And I was just like, I don't. I think that if you if you let it all out, including I mean, to me, it's like stand up should be if I'm hanging out with Bill Burr and Louis C.K. and whoever, we're going to talk about we're going to do AIDS jokes about each other's mothers and we're going to do diarrhea jokes. And we're also going to probably talk about some really smart shit. So I don't I don't consider that pandering um, unless you think that that's what the audience wants to hear. And that's what you need to do to get their approval. I think that to express blue material in a way that's authentic to you, that's valid. And I'm, uh, I wouldn't say I'm guilty of it. I do that. And I, I fucking love it. I have a joke about a guy from Whole Foods taking a shit and wanting to watch him because it is probably like ballet. It's like barely has to push. There's no smell. It's just, it comes out like Harbor Seal pups diving in the water, no splash. And then I describe taking a shit myself and there's a lot of wiping and you know, you're checking the wipes as you go. First two, I don't even look at the first two. Those just go straight. Like, so, I mean, that's to me, I fucking love doing that material more than I like doing a joke about, you know, some environmental issue because it's just, it just feels like it comes right out. You know, it's a release of things that you can't really talk about, but there's truth in them. Well, it's interesting. You said that Louis CK and Dane Cook, one of their biggest beefs that became public of the 92 seconds of material that uh, Louis never defended uh, Dane and said he didn't right. take it. Right. So when he could have done that. So look, I love Louis. I'm my first client ever. I I think the world of him and right. what he did for me one Christmas, which I might share with you is one of the, probably one of the greatest moments of my life. And uh, you're a Jew. So did. that's huge. It's huge. Well, Jesus was a Jew at some point in time until uh, his, somebody converted him. He hated the Jews. He did hate the Jews. Okay. I'll try to remember. He hated them as he was hanging from the cross, probably. Yeah. But the, the <laughs> <laughs> that was, I think the, the moment he re- really sunk in. I think before that you could call him anti-Semitic, but I think the hatred of the Jews was on that third nail. <laughs> I think when the dice came out, that's when he really was like, hey, those are my garments, motherfuckers. And that's when the garment industry really started with the Jewish people. And that's why it was called Shmata, or was it the... He just out me. Sorry. I don't know what Shmata is. I'm sorry, I lost my way. I, uh, I'm just honored that you actually laughed at something I said. <laughs> that was the first time. I'm a sucker for Yiddish. I mean, yeah. I, I spent a lot of time at the Friars Club in New York. And if French is the language of love, Yiddish is the language of comedy. <laughs> it certainly is. What I was going to say was one of the bits that Dane and Louis got in an altercation about was probably a 20-second bit on itchy asshole. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> They're fighting over a joke, itchy asshole. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, and I just saw, you know, and the thing, yeah, you can write the same bits. I just saw... Um, one of the other bits was about seeing a guy ride a bicycle down the street and a car door opens and how you react in that split second. Uh-huh. And then um, I just saw, I'm not going to say who it is, a very famous comedian 
do the exact same bit. And I wanted to pull him aside and go, whoa, 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 <laughs> this could end your career. Because, I mean, that bit, I mean, whatever that 90 seconds is, I mean, it, like with Carlos Mencia, there was... I think that hurt Dane tremendously. Tremendously. Because, because Louis, and I'm speaking freely, I'm just saying factually what happened. Louis never went on record and said, everybody, calm down. We all do stuff that's similar. This is 90 seconds. Look, my bit about the the names and the, the sound effects of the names. Look, Steve Martin did a similar thing. You know, we all think of little things. You know, he has about seven hours material. I have about seven hours of material. I don't think his career has been made from 90 seconds and neither will mine. But he didn't go out and do that. As a matter of fact, he went on a show at Largo and actually read a letter that Dane sent to him, a passionate letter, just, you know, asking him to, I don't want to get into the details of it, but if you were there that night, you would have. So the fact is, is that that happened and it did damage Dane's, Dane's career. And if you do something like that, if the right comics who are in that world don't stand up for you, it can really take a hit and it takes a while to overcome that. And so I remember one time I was watching a show this was crazy. I, you know, not watching a show, but, you know, sometimes in L.A. you just, you go to one, one club to the other. They're two miles apart. You go to the Improv, the Laugh Factory, the Comedy Store. And it was a day that I think George Bush, I, I think there was some kind of legislation about building a wall on the border of Arizona to keep the illegal Mexican people out. That was the premise of what was happening that day. And at three different clubs. Oh, I know exactly the joke you're going to tell. I saw Paul Rodriguez, yep. uh, George Lopez, Carlos Mencia. and Carlos Mencia do the same exact joke that night. Who do you think is going to build it? Who's going to build the wall? Right. That's right. Well, you know, George Lopez threw Carlos against the wall at the Laugh Factory. <laughs> I think I was there that night. Yeah, there was an actual physical fight about how much material he felt he was taking from him. I don't think there was any fight. I think I just saw feet about a, a foot from, right. uh, from the ground. Right. Right. And I mean, you talk about a career going away fast. I mean, Jesus Christ, Carlos was the number one Latino comic in the country when he had that show on Comedy Central. He was selling out the Nokia Theater and that he shot a special in Dallas at a place that held like, you know, 30,000 people. Yeah. And I see the dude's picture up in clubs I'm working now. I mean, that's a big fall. And it's incredible because it was all based on Joe Rogan and him one night. At the uh, comedy store. One night. It was caught on video and put up. And you talk about a guy's career disappearing, and that's the power of the internet now. Because the same thing happened with Louis and Dane. It would not have been a story if it was not blogged about and chat-roomed about to death. And then the other side of the coin, the power of the internet in the positive way, is a guy who you mentioned in this podcast who was pounding the pavement for probably 10 12, 13 years who booked his first acting job ever and then didn't book another acting job after that and was trying to get a name for himself but some strange Open Anthony show in Philadelphia somebody has a phone in the crowd and they film him bombing and then they film him coming back the last five minutes and killing shitting on them in the city of Philadelphia and Bill Burr that was his entrance and that took that was the thing he needed the one thing he needed to take his voice to the next level and when he was ready to take it to the next level. Boy, was he ready to take it to the next level. And he's amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing how fast you can... And how... 
And I think what that also points out is how it's not in your control. People think, you know, managers tell their clients, well, you got to make viral videos. You got to make some vines. You got to do a podcast. Well, if doing vines is not something that you're comfortable doing and you don't have the skill set for, you're wasting your time. You know, the girl that brought me to the dance is stand-up, so I focus on that. And then doing a podcast came out of me doing a radio show on Howard Stern's channel, so I just I just started doing another hour afterwards, and it felt right. It felt like I love sitting and talking to people. I mean, it's like you know this. You get to sit down for an hour, hour and a half with somebody that is compelling to you enough that you invited them on. A lot of times it's a friend. you, And you're used to grabbing snippets of five minutes of conversation in a club before somebody interrupts or you're at a, you're at a premiere party or, or you're whatever. You're never really talking. I mean, our cell phones are both off and we are looking at each other like a couple of queers and we're having a real conversation. And that's so invaluable. So that's, that's what struck a chord for me. I don't know if, you know, Marin's turned into lightning in a bottle. Corolla's already was because he had a big broadcasting career. But you look at how things can explode. Podcast has been great for me. I'm making a really nice living from it, but it certainly hasn't put me in the stratosphere of Corolla. It could with one podcast. You know, I don't know who that guest might be, but something might happen that goes viral and all of a sudden you can go to that next level. And that's the thing about the internet. You can't choreograph it. You can't map it out. You can just find the way that puts you in a position where it's showing your strengths and then you hope that somehow traction comes the way it did with Bill Burr, the way um, MySpace worked for Dane Cook, the way... um, uh, what's the kid's name at the improv that he does tons of videos? Um, anyway, that's not my thing, so I don't, but I think it's about, um, you know, being yourself, doing quality work, and the rest takes care of itself. But when you try to control it by saying, I'm going to put my shit, like I see these young comics plugging their fucking Facebook account during their set and handing out business cards afterwards. And it's like, you're gross. You just, and your, your act is shit. Your whole act is pandering. It's all like, oh, I'm Asian. So I'm going to do an Asian voice because that's what you're expecting from me. It's like, yeah, stop fucking wasting everybody's time on stage. That's valuable stage time. I agree with that. I never... Now, granted, when I was... By the way, there was not a reference to Ali Wong, who I love. I'm thinking of this guy, just to clarify. (laughs) I won't say his name. I knew that. This is the thing about that. I I never understand when people give out stuff after their shows or give out cards. And I'll tell you why I, I don't understand it. Because... I understand it in the 70s when Aerosmith were in Harvard Square giving out flyers because that's all you had. You didn't have the internet. But people will find you. If they see you and they love you, they will track you down like your ass is on fire and they will fucking find you. They don't need you mentioning, hey, check me out on Facebook or a card or whatever. They will figure it out. They're, they have their phone with them. They'll just type their name into their text. They enjoy the search. It's and they like a enjoy the hunt. search and they enjoy finding that person. So you don't have to give out flyers or do anything like that. And the problem is a lot of comedians who start rising, they think it's because of the flyers. It's just actually because of the content. 
and there isn't anybody that I know in comedy. I always say this and probably they might bore a lot of people, but singers can get standing ovations anywhere in the country and they may never make it. If you're a comedian and you're, I don't care if you know, Hong Kong in a strip bar doing comedy, if you're doing comedy like George Carlin, people will find you and That's, you will be a huge star. I say star. that all the time. It's a meritocracy. And I say it to young kids that are saying to me, I got to try to get representation. <laughs> if, if I get a manager, then this will happen. If I can get on a star search or whatever, uh, uh, what's what's that show uh, uh last, last comic standing then i'll make it's like no asshole all you gotta do is do good comedy because there's a need for it this business i mean comedy besides porn is the number one thing on the internet you look at the amount of con and comedy and porn is together is, yeah. is actually oh, number we're, one we're, we're meant to be together you know what is a punchline but a bukkake <laughs> shot to the face <laughs> And it's really like... Yeah, I've never been across from anybody who actually pronounced that in front of me. Thank you. Well, I hosted the Porn Awards <laughs> oh, twice. Okay. So yeah. I know I know my way around that world. <laughs> and uh, it's true. You, you, If you are doing good comedy, and it's like every time I hit a little, you know, uh, slow spot in my career and you start to get scared, a little frustrated, just write some shit and go out to the clubs and work on your act. And all of a sudden, stuff just pops up. Absolutely. Now, do you mind if I just do something right now? Oh, because Jesus Christ. Just don't look me in the eye while you're doing it and don't play with my balls. Okay, I won't do that. All right, so what I'd like to do is I'd like to go way, way back, if Let's you go don't back. mind, in the way back machine. I want to find out what kind of environment you were living in in New York City where you were born or grew up or however that was. And what was your first vision that you wanted to be in the entertainment business. What was it that said to you, that spoke to you, like, hey, I want to be in comedy or I want to... Well, my dad was one of the top uh, radio announcers in New York City my whole life. So he was like one of the... One of the guys that, you know, you walk down the street and people go, hey, Fitzy, you know, and we had season tickets to the Giants and the Mets and everybody knew him. And we'd go to Ratazzi's, which is like the restaurant that Mad Men always refers to going to. And he had a, his own table and it was it was hot shit. You know, he drove a Lincoln Town car and we just kind of like I'd go see him do benefit shows where he did a lot of benefit shows. Now, now explain to our audience what a radio announcer was. Well, he hated being called a disc jockey but this is back when talk radio before talk radio was displaced by syndicated formatted radio and it was like podcasting you know he would have guests on mayor Koch used to call in every single day and uh he would have in you know comedians the clancy brothers frank sinatra and and they would just talk and so he was a real personality and so he loved putting on a tuxedo and going and doing a benefit show where he got to do 15 minutes of what you would call stand up. But it wasn't stand up. It was, you know how it is when you MC a dinner. It's like, it's like his best stories, shitting on a few people. And if he had been born 20 years later, he would have been doing what I did and he would have gone into stand up. So I can remember the first time I got on stage, besides being an avid joke teller as a little kid i read i had subscriptions to every comic book i was reading art buckwald books when i was like eight <laughs> years old like anything funny bill cosby books and uh when i was in, when i was about 
11 years old, there was a swim team that I was on and I was so bad at swimming that they put me into the nine and under group, even though I was 11 and I, and they would give everybody a plaque, you know, just they'd find a reason to give you a plaque at the awards dinner. And I got like, you know, fourth place in breaststroke in the, in the uh, nine and unders and everybody would go up and the, uh, the swim coach would announce your name and you'd shake his hand and take the plaque. And I went up to get my third place, fourth place, uh, breaststroke. And I grabbed the mic out of his hand and I started thanking everybody in the room, including Ronald Reagan and, uh, my parents and the other kids on the team. And I did like a five minute spoof of acceptance awards at 11, at, at 11 years old. And I mean, every time there was a live microphone in a venue, I picked it up and I talked into it and I told jokes and I spent all my teen years going to the comic strip and the comedy cellar and watching guys like Paul Reiser and Richard Belzer and Rick Crome and, uh, you know, just guys that were the staples in those clubs and we knew their acts. And, you know, I had one buddy in particular, Frank Moretti, and we uh, that's what we did at night. Wow, that's incredible. I had no idea that you started looking at comedy when you were that young. How did you get into the clubs? Um, well, I did a high school talent show when I was a senior, and uh, there was some drugs involved and some drinking, and my microphone was unplugged halfway through my set by the principal because I was shitting on all the teachers. <laughs> and I got the bug. I mean, I remember walking out the door of the auditorium after that, and literally jumping up and down like I just won the Super Bowl. My head almost flew off my shoulders. It was so intense. And I just knew. And so I went to BU and um, I did some college comedy contests. And uh, I. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. Did, I won a couple of those contests. Did you? Yes. It was always like certs. I got to open for Franken and Davis because I uh, won one of them. No shit. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I uh, I think I won one of them, but um, but I was I, my first actual time in a club was Stitches Comedy Club, which was on Commonwealth Avenue. And for those of you who don't know the Boston comedy scene, uh, Stitches opened up after there were a couple of comedy clubs there called the Comedy Connection, which was at the Charles Playhouse on Warrington Street, and Nick's Comedy Stop, which opened thereafter on Warrington Street. 
and I had a club called Play It Again Sam's later on, but Stitches was the premier place because it was a really classy rock and roll club tied to the promoter, Don Law, who was in the area, and I think he owned a piece of it, as well as uh, the people who owned all the clubs on Lansdowne Lansdowne, Street. Street. I think it was the Lions Brothers or something like that. And so you had this beautiful, beautiful rock and roll club, a 500-seat rock and roll club in the back, where you could go see Sinead O'Connor coming into town or Carly Simon doing a show or even Black 47. Yeah, just amazing. The first time people coming in, like if Lana Del Rey was starting her first thing, that's where you would go see her. Of course, you wouldn't see her there now. but, But the point being, but in the front room, they had the comedy club. And it technically speaking... It wasn't set up well as a comedy no. club. No. Um, they tried to make it this new wave or new age kind of place where the stage was indented in the wall. But I'll tell you something about the club that was the most innovative thing about it that I loved so much. And there was a show there, and I hate to digress here, but I think this is really cool to talk you about. You hate to digress? Yes, because <laughs> I, well, I, don't hate to, I, I don't hate to digress, yeah. but I hate to do it in front of you. Yeah. I have digressed throughout the, my whole career. Frankly. Right, uh, right. But that's uh, you need to progress. I need to progress. That's another story. <laughs> but Stitches was a place that would. This is twenty-five years ago. They had a screen that came down on a show called The Sweeney Meany oh, Show, which right. was Steve Sweeney and Kevin Meany. And these two guys hosted a show together on Wednesdays. It was always sold out. The greatest comedians would work on these shows, from Lenny Clark to Stephen Wright. Kenny to Rogerson. Kenny Rogerson, Jack Gallagher, Bobcat Goldthwait. Amazing, amazing stand-up performances. And at the end of the show, Meany and Sweeney sometimes, and then later on Meany alone, and then Anthony Clark took over him, the screen would come down and there would be a cameraman with a long cord, not a wireless camera. It seemed like it went like 25 to 50 yards and they would just go out on the street. And when I say out on the street, not just out on the street, but out on the road, they'd be stopping cars. He got on a bus at one point. got on a bus. I don't even know how he did it. Yeah. And it would be beamed inside the club, so you'd be outside watching sometimes as a comedian the doorway and seeing them do the piece and inside hearing the laughter of the crowd. And it was like something that you'd never seen technologically. And me walking around going, what are you doing walking around with the tight pants? (laughs) That's not right. We're big pants people. That's right. I mean, he just had this tone of talking to people. I I would say in my life, nobody has ever made me laugh as hard on stage. When Kevin Meany is in his stride, second to none. It's incredible. And the thing is, is that... One of the things that we talk about, and I'm going to go back to your first thing on stage. One of the things we talk about a lot is the pandering thing. And Kevin Meany, this is so great that we talked about this. Kevin Meany broke the rule of pandering because he did like a a heightened character of himself that actually not only pandered to himself... But in the meantime, pandered to the audience in yeah, this he weird and dance, singing and dance. He was the he knew he was 
He was doing a comedy act that he knew was pandering, but it was intelligent pandering. Well, yeah, and then he would then he would disassociate from it and start singing "I Don't Care." That's right. Like he would pretend he's pandering and then literally sing to the audience, "I don't care. My what, jokes what, don't go uh, over. I don't care." That's right. I'm happy go lucky. Women call me pluck pluck plucky. I don't <laughs> care. Then he'd start going meow meow meow. <laughs> Meow, 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 meow. He would sing the song in dog and cat, like literally saying, I don't give a fuck. You know, all that stuff, all that singing, dancing. That was a joke. This is for me. Yeah, it was incredible. And respected comedians who did great, great, hardcore planting their feet in front of the microphone, set up and joke, loved him. Right. And one of the few guys that did that kind of an act where people loved him. And he just was because they knew he was on the inside looking out, as you said, mm. as opposed to the outside looking in. I yeah. think that's how you worded it. So your first set was on at Stitches. Did you kill as hard as you did when you were 11? I had a lot of shills. There was there was some <laughs> friends from from college, you know, who came out. I was a freshman. It was the day that the... Uh, Chicago Bears beat the New England Patriots in the Ouch. Super Bowl. So it was a dark, dark day. It was 3 nothing at one point. It was one of the biggest upsets in Super Bowl history. <laughs> and I mean, in a town where the Patriots, a win or a loss, dictated the mood of the entire city. And I, I didn't give a shit. I was on stage at Stitches, the club that I'd been going to. You know, I started as a freshman at BU. And it was literally, this, the club shared an alley with my dorm. And I was just there every night watching these shows. Wait, so you were in the same dorms that I started? Sleeper. I was in Sleeper. I no was in room shit. 404 in I was Sleeper. in 303. Unbelievable. That's insane. Holy shit. Yeah. So we would basically... And, and they're giant buildings. three giant buildings. Sleeper, Rich, and Claflin. Overlooking the field, uh, the football right. field. Right. They're 14 stories high. And it was crazy. The partying and the sex... And you're you're not out in the suburbs. You're in you're in Boston. And I don't you, remember those uh, times, frankly, because I, I guess I was a wallflower. I didn't really get oh, much action. I'm sorry. It was good. It was a good time. It was. Okay. Yeah. And so so I had some shills. I have it on tape, and I'm embarrassed when I listen to it. I would literally never play it for anybody. It was a lot of like jokes that I'd heard at the Friars Club growing up, like set up like jokes from the point of view of an old Jew, and I didn't know. I was just telling them. So what you're saying is in your first set, you were derivative. Very derivative. Got it. Yes. It took me a while to not be derivative. So how did you learn how to do the right thing? Kevin Meany was like a mentor to me. He grew up He grew up in the next town over from me in New York. And my father belonged to a golf club. And Kevin was a waiter at the golf club. And so he knew my dad was in show business. That explains the bow ties he wore. Exactly. No, seriously. He was in the food service industry. He went to, he went to cooking school. He went to the culinary Institute in New York. So he was, he would come to the table and he would do his impressions, uh, for my dad and everybody. And he would sing this song <laughs> when he introduced the desserts, he'd, he'd sing the cheese boat, the cheesecake boat is coming. Hurrah. And he would do a whole fucking song for them. And so my father got Kevin on stage his very first time at catch a rising star in New York. That was his first set. And so when I was in college, my father said, do you remember that waiter, Kevin from the golf club? And I go, yeah, of course, Kevin. I mean, I was 11, 12 years old. 
And so this is the place where I made the speech on the swim team. And so he goes, well, look him up. He's a big comedian now because I had just started doing comedy. And I went to Catch a Rising Star in Boston and he in killed- Harvard Square. In Harvard Square. And he killed like, like literally- Belly, and people say that, but belly aching, wiping tears, relentless. Think of a Def Jam crowd when you watch it as a comedian's on who's killing. And that's what it was like watching a Kevin Go Meany online crowd. and look at his first appearances on Carson. He was one of those guys that went on and then got called back six times in the first year. And Carson's forehead is on the desk and he is pounding the desk. He's wiping tears when Kevin comes over to the desk. Yeah, and Kevin was one of the few guys. There was a weird thing that happened is with Kevin. He did his first Tonight Show and Johnny wasn't there. And he got called over to the couch, I believe, on that performance. I don't know if it was Leno or if it was somebody else. And then Carson saw it and brought him back like similarly how Stephen Wright was brought right. back like five days later. Right. And still killed there and brought him to the couch. And the beauty is he will, he always worked clean. So he was ready to do TV sets. Yeah. So anyway, um, I walked up to him after the show and he immediately went, Fitzsimmons, like recognized <laughs> me from when I was a kid. And that was it. He would bring me on the road and uh, we spent a lot of, he was in my wedding party when I got married. He's one of my closest friends in the world. And uh, he had a big influence on me. He gave me a lot of guidance on how to do it. And, um, and just watching him, seeing, seeing, you know, Get just the spirit of what he was doing, I think, was uh, very much infected the way I did my stand-up. Were you living out of college? Where were you living? What kind of job did you have to pay the bills? How was your situation before you started breaking well, through? I mean, I did stand-up that first time, and then I didn't really do it. My, I think I probably did it three or four times in college after that. And then my senior year, I started going out like regularly i was in in class during the day and then out at the clubs me and joe rogan started like the same week and we were just banging around we drive to providence one night we drive to worcester the next night maine the next night i mean working for you booked the gig so you knew what they paid i know i mean it would be like there's this running joke about you that i'm sure you've heard <laughs> but the and, audience probably hasn't heard it well this is this is the uh, quintessential barry katz story Barry Katz calls up Frank Santarelli and he goes, uh, by the way, just to preface this for those of you who don't know, I did a little bit of stand up. I hosted some shows, but then I started my own company where I would book because I thought there was a dearth of that. And so I booked all these one nighters all across New England. And at one point in time, I had like about 50 one nighters and it was a real pipeline for comedians to get work. And Barry's office was the <laughs> basement of a student slum in Alston and Barry walked around in no shoes just in his socks yeah I ne no I had bare feet I never I never I never wore shoes in the office I didn't I didn't want to wear shoes right you know? and he had uh, this woman Nina working for him who Wonderful. slaved for you I love she Nina chain Brower. smoked and booked comedy like an animal <laughs> and then you walked around like king shit and you just schmoozed comics who would come by king shit in the basement king shit in the basement and you booked these gigs a lot of them were real hell hell rooms and it would and so here was the standard call frank barry Katz. i got a gig for you in northern maine it's five and a half hours you gotta pick up the headliner there's no hotel room and it pays 50 bucks you want it? Long pause. Frank goes, yeah, I'll do it. Barry says, it's canceled. <laughs> 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 
brings back horrible memories. <laughs> yeah, like I used to book all these crazy gigs. I remember one time I booked this gig. You mentioned Frank Santarelli. I booked Frank Santarelli, Ed Regine, and Julie Barr. Now, Julie Barr was probably six foot tall, but really wonderful woman who was doing comedy, but not really that strong at the time. Ed Regine, who was like a... The a, Machine. Ed, Ed the, machine, the machine, machine Regine. As far as audience response was concerned in these gigs, probably one of the highest audience response, but did a lot of props, did a lot of different things, sometimes did a character of an Italian guy. Did time guy, in jail. And did time in jail. For resetting odometers when he was selling used cars. That's right. That's right. Wow. And Frank Santarelli, who'd come from Cleveland, and he was just more of an entertainer, but had some great funny things. He was just a really great guy. Killer timing. Unbelievable delivery. He was on The Sopranos. Yeah. He was the bartender on The Sopranos. And I book them. I remember I have like a budget of maybe $300 to book a cruise around the harbor. So you're paying out 100 of that. No, no. I always took 20% as a booker in the basement uh, at that time, I believe. So there was six, so there was about $240 left for the comedians. Something like that. But anyway, so I tell them all they're going on a cruise around the harbor. So Julie Barr thinks that it's like a, a cruise, like a princess cruise. So she goes down there dressed in like an evening gown and like high heel <laughs> shoes. Ed Regine is probably dressed in his shiny double breasted, double breasted zoot shoot suit where he did the character of an Italian guy, yeah. Ed the Machine, the Machine. And Santarelli always dressed in like a Hawaiian shirt, shorts, right. and sneakers. Right. And so it turned out that this cruise around the harbor was like a tuna boat, <laughs> okay? <laughs> and you just hear the engine just... Diesel you know, fuel. Diesel fuel smelling up the whole thing. And they're trying to do comedy on a tuna boat with the life preservers hanging down from the top. You know how that is? <laughs> no stage, no, no lights. Stage, Here's no a wireless lights. mic. Go. Here's a wireless mic. Go. So, <laughs> so Julie Barr goes on. Nothing. I mean, crickets. Okay. You can hear the waves. Which is really bad because there's no crickets out in Barth, Boston Harbor. That's how quiet it was. <laughs> It was literally wafting in from Cambridge. <laughs> oh, shit, man. I can't. I, can't. <laughs> I mean, they literally bought crickets on the ship just so the comedians can get some sense of how badly they were doing. <laughs> I can't even laugh. I'm laughing so hard. So Ed Regine goes on. He does okay. But he's noticing Julie Barr walking around the corner because you, you're on the boat for four hours. Right. You have to stay on this oh. boat in like an evening gown oh. and like high heel shoes and everybody walking up to you saying, don't worry, you'll get him next yeah. time. <laughs> and then Frank Santorelli goes on and kills. And Frank tells me, calls me after the gig. He says, boy, it was rough for Julie. Ed did okay. I killed him. But I got to tell you about something that happened. I said, what happened? This is how comedians are. Well, Ed Regine, after the gig, you know, I'm in the corner. I'm having a drink. He comes up to me and he leans up to my ear and he says, what are you making? 40? 
<laughs> so he thought that the headliner was making the forty dollars that he was making, but every comedian always checks to see what oh, they're doing. Right. So that's why you can never book a gig when you're writing, which we'll talk about. That's why there's union fees for first time writers, second time writers, because everybody talks to each other about what right. they're making. Right. Right. And it's crazy. Well, and also just going back to Julie, like when you bomb on a ship, it's almost like having <laughs> sex with a woman, not getting it up, and having to sit and have dinner with her afterwards. <laughs> Everybody is ashamed on the boat. You're ashamed. They're ashamed for you. And, you know, and you talk about people who do these cruise ships. You're stuck on there for a week with these people. That's right. Your room has no windows. I've never done it. Sometimes but they is... airlift you off the ship if you do poorly. I've heard that. Sometimes if you can't get it up with your girl, she airlifts you off that's the right. ship. <laughs> so that's that's a that's a bad good thing. one, Barry. Thank you. Yeah. I, I I have to. I can't follow the cricket line, no, no, but uh, but that was that's pretty good. solid. <laughs> so go back. So you're living. Uh, so I'm working at. Um, I was I was cleaning a house on Beacon Hill. I would go over to this house. I'd pick up. I'd pick up the kids from school and then I'd go, the, the, the dad was the head of neurosurgery at uh, Mass General and the, the mom was getting her PhD in theology. So, so they were weren't around. So you were a nanny. I was a nanny. I'd pick up these kids and I'd clean the house in this, you know, upper crust Beacon Hill place that was completely run down. And where were you living? I was living in Alston near your office. And we're living in what kind of apartment? Do you have roommates. It was you know a dump. I had uh, I had the I lived with jocks for some reason. I was with the captain of the rugby team, captain of the lacrosse team, captain of the tennis team, and me, horrible athlete but comedian. And we used to have killer parties. And then we had a guy from Northern Ireland sleeping on our couch, who was a friend of my brother's, who came for the head of the Charles weekend and stayed for a year. No rent, living on the couch, but he had weed and he had this meat truck. He would deliver, he would sell meat to, to, to stores. He would go door to door with a refrigerated truck. And so we'd get baked. And then at three in the morning, he'd go down and get a couple of prime ribs and we'd cook, cook them up. And by the end of the year, he led, he left town because he owed them so much money because he, we were eating all the meat <laughs> and uh, his name was Sean Burgoyne. And uh, so it was just, it was a constant party. I was cleaning this house and then I was working as a banquet waiter at the Marriott. Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to BarryCats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever.
All right, so this is sort of like a word association. I'm going to mention somebody, but what I want you to do is Jeez, think... Jeez, you're going to get me in trouble, huh? I'm not going to get you in trouble because I just want you to think towards something that you feel about this person or maybe a story or something that moves you about this person and your relationship or that, that might people might not know because what, what I think is really important for the audience is uh, the running theme is, uh, and I say this a lot about that old Dale Carnegie book, uh, How to Win Sitting Friends on your desk right now. and Influence People is, is associate yourself with great people. And is that like a book you live by? I really believe that you. it's important for you. That's the thing. And in your career, I don't know if you realize it or not, but if you look at it, you went to the Montreal Just for Last Festival, the greatest festival in the world. Okay? You did Letterman, one of the greatest iconic people in the business. You did Leno. No matter what anybody can say about Leno, if you were ever to see him perform now or whatever, the guy is a monster in terms of stand-up and always was now one Rushmore. of the greatest. Incredible. Ellen, Chelsea Handler you've you worked with. You, I mean, Louie. So every single person, all these people are people that I believe are geniuses or have that quality about them. And you've associated yourself with them, which puts you uh, in that category. And in my opinion, when you're around those people and people respect what you have to say. So let's talk a little bit about these people and let's just, just a little quick something that's a story, something our audience might not know or some insight into something. All right. Here we go. Uh, Conan O'Brien. Conan is a guy, when I uh, did stand up there the first time, uh, he immediately had a connection because I was doing jokes about being from a dysfunctional Irish family. And then during Another the guy from Boston. Right. Well, I'm from New York, but I yeah. Yeah, started in Boston. And so we basically just started talking about, uh, during the commercial break, he told me about his family. And then every time I do the show, I'd always come backstage with them and they, they would have kind of a uh, post-mortem writer's <laughs> meeting. And- I've never seen anybody be able to be, he wants to play. He wants to be funny and he is the funniest guy in the room. And you're talking about some of the great writers, you know, Louis CK and uh, um, Mike Sweeney, all these razor sharp, fast, funny guys on his staff. And he's back there. And that is where he is the happiest. He just likes to be around funny people being funny. Bill Maher. You know, yeah, I, he's got a reputation, I guess, as you know, being a, a, a you know pushing writers hard to work hard. But I think it comes from being around comedians and knowing that we're essentially lazy, and that if we're pushed, we have a lot under the hood, and there's a lot down there. And I think he's a guy who pushes himself that hard, and so he has to push the people around him that hard. But um. You know, I think he's I think he's complete. He's a rare thing in that his show Politically Incorrect could not one of the great show names of all time. And he lived up to it. You know, he's a guy that does not back off from his opinions. I don't think he forces his opinions. You know, I think you look at a Bill O'Reilly or somebody like that. I think he conjures up a, a take that's going to, you know, get a rise out of people. I think Bill just really has some strong feelings and he uh, and I respect he doesn't back off of them. Jay Leno. Jay was one of the guys I used to go see at the bottom line as a teenager. And uh, the bottom line, great, great club in Greenwich Village or on the outskirts of Greenwich Village. Right. Uh, 
and uh, going down there and watching him. And uh, like you said, I mean, in in his prime pre Tonight Show when he was a pure stand up, you know, there's nobody that's ever been more professional, more just tight on the money. And and people don't realize he had an edge. He had real attitude before he got the Tonight he Show. He did. And actually, if you see him do stand up now, you'll see that edge as well. He's, he's still got it. And I was doing um, man on the street stuff for him on the Tonight Show for a while. And uh, one day I'm, I'm out in the yard doing yard work with my wife and uh, the, the home phone rings and she gets it and she goes, yeah, right. Who is this? <laughs> and it's Jay Leno. And he just called me out of the blue to just go, uh, hey, man, I really I love what you're doing on the show. I just wanted to thank you for, for doing it. And I mean, you hear those stories all the time about him. Incredible. Jimmy Kimmel. Jimmy is like, uh, you know the most loyal dude of all time. His relationship with Stern is really kind of, uh, you know, um, it's, it's so personal. And yet he's such a fan of Stern that you see that, you know, he, he still is buzzing from the fact that he's friends with Howard Stern. And I think Stern kind of feels the same way. And like, I've been like lucky enough to become friends with him. And he's like, you see the guys he hangs out with and they're the same guys he's known his entire life. And the guys that produce the shows that he's done over the years, crank Yankers and man show. It's all the same guys. And, uh, you know, I think that's a hell of a way to live your life to get as, as successful as you are and surround yourself with your uncle and your cousin. You know, his parents are extremely close to him, his brother, sister, you know, it's, uh, I, I, all people should be as Italian as Jimmy Kimmel. Adam Carolla. Um, slightly Asperger's. You know, he's got this intensity that I love. Um, I just feel like, like we'll, we'll go on road trips. Like he'll do a gig in Irvine and he'll ask me if I want to come with him and jump up on stage and, and, and riff. And so, uh, we'll drive down and I just bring my tape recorder and I do a podcast with him. We drive down and for an hour and 15 minutes or whatever it takes, he just, uh, and, and I, I say to him, this is the way I want to interview you because your brain <laughs> is so crazy that when you're driving, it's, it, there's your frontal lobe is occupied by driving and I get the other part, which is freed up from how you normally are. And, and it's just, there's a part of him that comes out that's much more vulnerable and it's less apt to go into a rant that he's maybe said before. And uh, and so we have these really amazing podcasts together. I had a really amazing one with him, too. He's just yeah. incredible. He's incredible. Yeah. And just uh, how he does it, I don't know. I don't know how somebody, how you can say something like Crayola crayons and have a guy <laughs> without missing a beat go into, uh, you know, an editorial piece on, on crayons <laughs> that ends with a laugh. Oh my God, Howard Stern! Too much to say. I mean, I don't know where to start. You know, it's uh, I've never had somebody support me. Um, you know, I talked about Louis C.K. on the writing side, and I would say with Howard doing those, doing all these appearances on his show has kept me in the business. You know, it has literally been something that I get meetings with people sometimes only because they want to talk to me because they hear me on the Howard Stern show. To this day, I, I will go into a network meeting and there'll be some some guy who's 40 years old from New York who's a Stern fan that lights up when I come in the room. And it's the same thing with stand-up. It helps me draw people into the clubs. And, uh, and it all comes from a very genuine 
appreciation that he has for how I function on his show. And it's something that, you know, it's symbiotic. I think I give to the show, but he gives way more to me in terms of uh, this seal of approval and, and being, I'm in the club. I'm in the Howard Stern club. Yes, you are. Ellen DeGeneres. Um, she's, uh, <laughs> who else you got on the list? <laughs> you are I'm laughing like the crickets line. <laughs> See? Nice guy. David Letterman. <laughs> Ah, oh, Letterman. I, I mean, I remember the, the one of the times I did Letterman, they, they come down the stairs and they say, clear the hallway, clear the hallway, because when Letterman comes downstairs, he doesn't want to bump into anybody before the show. <laughs> and so, uh, so I clear the hallway. And then after the show, I'm walking back up to my dressing room and he happens to be coming into the stairwell at the same time and we bump into each other. And he says... He says the same thing that he says to you when you finish your set. He comes over and he goes, nice job. Thanks for being on the show or some version <laughs> of that. And he said basically the same thing to me. And I was like, oh, my God, I just I feel naked. And people say like you hear people complain about that. Like, you know, you know, Dave, you go on a show and then during the commercial break, he doesn't even talk to you. He just he just sits there and he looks at his notes and it's like. This guy has been doing this for what, 40 years at, at the highest level that anybody's ever done it. And he has to engage three people a night with notes, with a monologue, with doing promos for the network, standards and practices, dealing with writers. When he's doing his one hour show, this dude is on a high wire. He doesn't want to engage. He, you know, Jay Leno, God bless him, comes into your green room before you go on the show and talks to you. Letterman is a personality that cannot do that and shouldn't be expected to do that. He's doing something nobody else can do. Who gives a, why do you need to fucking talk to him during the commercial break? <laughs> Shut up and let him look at his notes. <laughs> Chelsea Handler. I love Chelsea's another one that she gets a reputation for being a little bit tough because she's outspoken. And I think people have a problem with her because they have problems with women that are strong. And uh, I think that she is, I mean, second to Howard, she is the best interviewer out or Colbert. I think Letterman Colbert and uh and Howard and Chelsea I put up there above everybody else. She her one-on-one -on -one interviews with celebrities are so in the moment. There is absolutely no no check in her mind. She says exactly what she wants and and she gets away with it because when you own it and you really are that person, people go with it. They don't get offended. And she gets in deep with people. It's amazing. Louis CK. You know, like I said, Louis, I owe, I owe a lot to Louis and, uh, and I see a lot of comics, they come up and they try to do things like, um, like you were talking about when, when, when comics start to sound like other comics and you're seeing a lot of Louis CK type comedians out there now, but they're not really getting it. Louis is raw and he, you can call him blue, but there's a method to it. There's, there's a message underneath what he's saying, or there's, there's some social commentary to, to what he's doing underneath it. 
and you see comics go, well, Louis C.K. did it. You know, they say that about Louis, like, well, Louis just wrote a short film and then he got to be the head writer of Conan. And I just always say to people, that's Louis C.K. Nobody else is going to do it the way Louis did it. Nobody else is going to take a $200,000 budget on cable and edit and write and star in and cast and score a show that wins Emmys. That's Louis. Come up with a plan that's yours because nobody will ever do what he did. Absolutely. Let's uh, shift gears here. Let's talk about the lowest moment you had in your career professionally and how did you work through it and how did that affect your career moving forward in a positive way? Oh, lowest point in my career. Jesus. What time is Besides it? Besides this podcast. <laughs> 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 um, that's tough because I think in a way I, I push through those things and I don't look back, you know, uh, I don't ponder on the low points. I can't because I'm, I gotta, not, I'm I, not asking you to ponder on. I'm just asking you to just recall one that might have uh, taken you to the next level after it happened. Well, I had a, you know, you go through periods where you've got a buzz, where you've got some heat, where, you know, suddenly people want meetings with you. I don't know anything about that. Yeah, right. You're the guy who creates it. Here's Barry's move. When Barry, when Barry has a client on a showcase at a comedy club, he stands in the back of the room and with those big fucking meat plates of hands, he starts applause breaks. And he'll start in the back left and he'll start an applause break. Then he'll move to the back right and he'll just keep moving around until heat begins on that client. Um, so I was, uh, so I had a little heat and I had a meeting. NBC, uh, was excited about me to the point where I had a meeting with the head of casting, the head of development and Jeff Zucker, the head of, you know, every department, like, you know, 11 people in a room and I'm coming in and it's a 9am meeting in Burbank. I live in Venice. I leave at eight. <laughs> And you know the ending of that. It took me an hour and 20 minutes to get there. And I walked into a meeting with Jeff Zucker and all these people 20 minutes late at the beginning of a workday on a Monday. And I was frazzled. I was ashamed. And I walked into that meeting and Jeff Zucker, was he just was watching the Today Show over my shoulder while, while interviewing me. And it was a 12-minute meeting. And I walked out of there and I went, I just took a major lottery ticket and flushed it down the toilet. And I, I can't say I've never been late since, but I think about that moment. Every time I'm getting ready for something, I swear to you, there's a part of that feeling deep inside of me that still makes me go, you know what? Like you said before, show up. And guess what, everybody? Guess what time uh, Greg Fitzsimmons showed up for his one o'clock podcast today? What time? 1245. That's right. All right. What's your proudest moment professionally? Well, I talked about the Letterman thing. That was that was without a doubt uh, a really big one. And I would say also I hosted the 20th, 25th anniversary of the uh, Porn Awards in Las Vegas on Showtime. And, uh, did they give you a free pack of pills with that? Uh, no, they gave you a fake vagina. 
a fake vagina. Yeah, they have like a thing called the... Um, Does it have a vice grip so you can tighten, calibrate it to be tighter or looser? Depending no, most on your guys size? don't need that, but I'll find out if they can get one <laughs> I do need... I remember this comedian who passed away, wonderful guy, Mike Sullivan Irwin, and he had this great joke. He said, you know, he'd go to the he'd go to the counter of a convenience store to get condoms, and, and, and it was an embarrassing moment, so he wanted to feel like he was, you know, a powerful guy, so he'd say, give me a pack of those uh, condoms condoms the magnum condoms and then he'd pause and he'd say and um uh, a pack of rubber bands please <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you host the porn awards on the 25th anniversary and that was your uh, moment in a way it was because like again going back to like working blue and owning that just as much i felt like you know i knew the challenge of bill hicks had done it sam kinnison had done it and i felt like this was the this was the wild west of comedy and i knew the producer who hired me said look you got there's gonna be seven thousand people out there many of them on cocaine, a lot of them porn stars, you will have to fight to get any attention whatsoever. And you've got 30 seconds. And if you don't get them in 30 seconds, they will literally just turn and start talking to each other at full volume and you will have to kill seven minutes. So I work my ass off. I mean, I had porn jokes, but I wrote more porn jokes and I was out every night doing them. And I came out and I had a great opening joke and I got them. And then it was raucous. It was 7,000 fucking cranked up people laughing at the dirt, literally the dirtiest material I could think of. And it was like flushing it all out of my system. And I got more notoriety because Showtime does not advertise the porn awards. It's like one of their highest rated programs of the year. You will not see an ad for it. And so I would just get guys pulling me aside going like, dude, you fucking killed on the board. Oh, my wife's coming. And, <laughs> and so uh, I, in a weird way, yeah, that was, a, that was a very cool thing. Oh, that's great. I keep thinking, I'm sorry, just as you said that I thought of uh, uh, one of Jay Moore's jokes where he says, you know, you're watching too much porn when you can recognize a male actor by his balls. <laughs> 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 hey everybody thanks for listening to the podcast i want to talk to you about an amazing documentary that i worked on a few years back called i killed jfk which was unlike anything i ever did in my life it's centered on a man who'd been in prison for 30 years was the only person in history to have admitted to killing kennedy and his story is unbelievable he started as a runner for the mob. He was hired to drive two hit men from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy who calibrated their weapons. And he was there that day with one of his own and took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere else except on this documentary. So go to barrycats.com to the merch page and buy the documentary with the rare interviews of the five greatest historical experts in the world, many of which you'll hear on the next three weeks of podcasts. So just go to barrycats.com, the merch page, Pick up the documentary and interviews, and I guarantee it will reverse the way you feel about what happened that day in 1963 and change your opinion of the government and how it works and alter the way you think about things forever. Lastly, I want to talk to you about something really impactful and it involves something really close to my heart, self-education. 
You see, throughout my life, I realized that every success I've ever achieved in my career has come from the education I received from my experiences in the business. And I truly believe that we all have the knowledge inside of us that others would kill for. And by sharing that, we can open up an entirely new world of possibilities for ourselves. That's why I'm so excited to tell you that I partnered up with my friend Tony Robbins, who's been number one in this field for 40 years. Along with his team of experts, Dean Graziosi and Russell Brunson, they'll show you how to take that valuable knowledge in your mind and turn it into an incredibly profitable mastermind workshop or event, just like they have and continue to do in their careers. And they're launching a new training program that's literally changing people's lives by helping people like you be a part of this $129 billion a year business. So it's an incredible opportunity for someone like yourself to build your own business, share your knowledge, and help and serve people in a huge way with the guidance of Tony Robbins, the best in the business. He's actually going to teach people like you how to make big money and build a successful business. So if you're ready to take your life to the next level, they're doing a free live training session today at barrykbb.com. That's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com. Look, I've done over 440 free podcast episodes of Industry Standard, and because of your incredible response, it's reinforced my belief that we're morally obligated to share and pass on our knowledge with the world and help other people in those ways. I truly believe this, and I really love this groundbreaking training program and how it can turn your knowledge into an extraordinary amount of money. So just go to barrykbb.com, that's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com, to this free training session with the best in the business, Tony Robbins. I guarantee you, it will change your life forever. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels you pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortune. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.